0: everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom.
1: My name is Brian Joyner.
0: And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week, Brian and I find a true crime story that resonated with us. Then I discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer, go into their childhood lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then we get a little spooky and we're going to learn something about uh, cryptids or the supernatural...
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> And before we get started, just a heads up that everything here is possible through your support from us. And one of those ways you can support us is through Patreon. There are four tiers from $5 to $50 that offer exclusive VIP content for our biggest fans, including a separate podcast about conspiracy theories. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash when killers get caught And you can buy our merch on our website at www.whenkillersgetcaught.com. And this week in True Crime, I bring you a story of a man in Oklahoma who is currently charged with murdering his father last month. Oh. And the quote in the headline is, he was happy for me
1: the father was happy for him to kill him Mm-hmm. Oh, okay as i told
0: you this week's story was just people just be saying anything <laughs> when they get arrested it's wild <laughs> so uh the accused is philip ray he's 43 uh he's accused of one count of murder in the second degree which happened on october 19th killing 76 year old charles ray Now, officers got to the scene. It was about 10, 15 p.m. And Ray's wife had called 911, said she found her husband in the backyard, unresponsive, covered in blood. Police found him lying next to the Warner bin, which was a concrete block. He had been repeatedly hit in the head. The defendant was arrested. He was still there. And uh, they charged him after they did an investigation. Now, according to the Express Star, the Oklahoma Express Star, the victim's body had obvious signs of homicide. <laughs>
1: you don't, you don't <laughs> say. Tell me more. <laughs> obvious signs of homicide It is a fucking and block. Yes. And uh,
0: the younger Ray had washed the blood off of himself, but it was still all over his clothes when he approached officers inside of his parents' home. He told the responding officers that his father had stared at the moon and did not suffer. Hmm. That's what he said while he was cuffed and they were leading him outside. They do think that he has a history of mental illness and substance abuse, though the details of that have not been given to the press. Mm -hmm. Uh, As he was walking away, he mumbled uh, that his father wasn't scared. He accepted what I did and he was happy for me. So, this involved multiple uh, federal agencies because the deceased is a member of the Chicksaw Nation, uh, Light Horse Tribe, as is his son. Oh. As a result, the Chicksaw Nation, Light Horse Police, police, the FBI, and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation had to take this from the local uh, police department. And so, that's why it took so long to charge him. Mm -hmm. just the neighbors were like we came outside there's a bunch of craziness going on they started flagging everything putting up barricades it's a really quiet neighborhood um and they don't really know why he did it other than just you know he was happy for me
1: he was happy for me so i had to kill him
0: yeah so this is obviously someone who is (laughs) ill but uh yeah I just thought the, the things that people say when they get arrested are...
1: It's hilarious.
0: ...wild and very intriguing. So what's your story?
1: Oh, goodness. Okay, so my story is basically the inverse of your story. Um, so <clears throat> I'm pretty sure you've heard of this. Everybody's heard of this this week. So father kills daughter's boyfriend For selling her into sex trafficking ring?
0: Excuse me? I've just been hearing about this all the time. Have have you not heard about this this week? No.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, a father in Washington State has been accused of abducting a man, Mm -hmm. um, his daughter's ex boyfriend or boyfriend, and beating him to death with a cinder block. All right. Um, After you're learning that.
0: he, Again, we're vibing. Yeah, Same murder I weapon, know. and we do not plan the out. I
1: know. And <laughs> he is the reason why he does is is because he's found out that this guy has sold his daughter into sex to a sex trafficking ring.
0: Now, was this like a pimp situation, <sighs> or was this an actual sex trafficking ring? Because people like to say that, but I feel like there aren't actually as many rings as people think there are.
1: It says that it's it was her boyfriend, so mm. I'm not sure if it was up.
0: Might have been given us that little, you know. Yeah, pimp action from a. Uh, I mean Barry Ridgeway time. Yeah, I was about when to say, they were don't inefficient. They, don't they
1: call them boyfriends sometimes? Yes, uh, they
0: absolutely do think they're in love with these men.
1: Okay, just okay. Just want to be sure about that. Um, so this happened. Recently, but uh, apparently in 2020, uh, the male, the, the 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 dad, his name is John Eisenman. Okay, and he he you know he found out that his daughter was you know sold into got you whatever, um, and that she had died afterwards too. <gasps> oh, wait no. wait wait yes no no. No, he's just chart. Okay, hold on a sec. Okay, I know I, mean, I was Brian. Sorry, my bad. my bad, my bad, my bad. So no, he 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 just found out that she got sold in in 2020. So she's a It doesn't say she's dead.
0: They don't know where she is.
1: Yeah, basically. Well, now I'm we're looking. definitely
0: not gonna know because you killed the person who knew.
1: Doubt. I doubt he knew.
0: You gotta wait. I doubt he. he's so like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Sold him into slavery and then went, eh, whatever. <laughs> Left him off.
1: Oh goodness. But um Yeah, her boyfriend was 19 years old, and his name was Andrew Sorensen. So her- Sorensen. Sorensen. a
0: famous person with that last name.
1: So he was 19 years old. Her dad was 60 years old and He's, so what's happening to Dad? He's being uh, well, he's facing a first degree murder charge.
0: Oh,
1: um, yeah, he was taken into custody October 29th, mm-hmm. and he's being held on, I, I guess, a million dollar bond.
0: That's excessive.
1: Yeah, I would think that's like that's a little too high. I mean, I get like. A big amount of money to for someone who's committed a murder, but for a 60-year-old man, he did it because...
0: Exactly. <laughs> like,
1: <sighs> anyway, he was like, in 2020, uh, Eisenman was told that his daughter was sold into a sex trafficking ring in the Seattle area, and that Sorenson may have been the one responsible for her sale may may have been responsible
0: Ooh, that's not good yeah that's this
1: is what police are saying um okay so he was i'm reading more he said that he was able to rescue his daughter okay. and get her back uh later that month um <laughs> so when eisman learned that you know her boyfriend was going to be like in at what's this, at a location in airway heights Mm -hmm. He traveled to the area and then waited for him to get there.
0: I mean, I'm not really mad at Dad in that situation.
1: No. And says, during, you know, as it was happening, Dad, he abducts the boy, ties him up, places him in the trunk of his car, um, and then he begins to beat him in the head with the cinder block. And then he stabbed him repeatedly
0: all right yeah
1: i mean and then afterwards dad he drives the car and over to i guess a, a remote area in Spokane. Sp- Sp- i don't know how to pronounce this spokane 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 county and abduct and abandoned a car with the body still inside. Ooh. I would have just lit the car on fire. Like, just blow the car. And
0: people would see the fire and come help.
1: Well. And... Burn the body first, and then it will spread to the rest of the car. That's right back where the gas tank is at. You know what I mean? Puncture that real quick.
0: It's still his. Like, you know what I mean, though? It's still his.
1: Take the plates off. take the plates off take all our paperwork out of there yeah here
0: you know i think it's it's beautiful just how sweet you are and not a criminal (laughs) sweet sweet person
1: oh goodness it says that um the boyfriend's remains weren't found until last month after authorities received a tip about a foul smell coming from an abandoned car on a East everett avenue i mean Sp-
0: apparently it was effective
1: <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> see maybe he shouldn't have burned it so, Nobody found it for a while so
1: I'm guessing this has all happened in the last year um 2020 but he's just being they just found it this last month last, this, this
0: is so confusing to me because there's some people who are okay this is i'm this is a like a forensic rant so it's <laughs> like it throws me for a loop right somebody died in my apartment building he didn't smell bad it just smelled weird it didn't smell like rotten fish or meat or anything it just smelled wrong and he was here for a couple days mm-hmm. and then you have like people who are missing for like a couple weeks and they don't smell at all and I'll, is that because of animals i don't know this guy was in a car for a year for
1: a year and he
0: smelled stinky I don't understand. He should have been completely skeletonized by now. Um, um, Is it because he was sealed up inside of the car? Did he just become people soup inside I, of the truck?
1: I'm guessing like it was an abandoned car. Who wants to go check out an abandoned car? Not a lot of people go by it, or you know, would go near it. So,
0: like I know when you're in a sealed coffin. You become body soup, Mm -hmm. which is why a lot of morticians and people in that industry don't recommend you get a completely sealed coffin because you got to let the gases out. Let the insects in. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. they're good for the whole putrefaction process. Yeah. But I just why would he still be stinky a year later? Wouldn't he be like mummified? Was it is it cold? Where is that again? It's not Seattle. It's Washington. D.C.?
1: Uh, no, 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 no. The state. Well, Washington
0: State. Oh, it's cold all the time there, so that's different. <laughs> it's it's wet and cold, so maybe I don't know. This is peculiar.
1: But yeah, um, so that's what I
0: have. It's very weird.
1: So, con- uh, like, I props to the dad because I would have done the same thing. I don't care if I found my daughter afterwards. You're still getting it Liam Neeson style. Um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pew pew.
0: Pew pew. Alrighty. Well, you know how I say that after spending so much time discussing things that are really awful, I need a break from the awful? Mm-hmm. And I definitely spent like a month working on the Gary Ridgway podcasts, and we're just gonna walk right back into some more awful. What?
1: <laughs> no, it supposed to be good. Awful. No,
0: nope. today we're talking about a serial killer duo Ooh. who are both kidnappers, rapists, robbers, and family annihilators, suspected of a total of twenty-five people they murdered in the eighties. Now, one of the reasons why we know a lot about their crimes and their criminal relationship is because one of them made videos. And kept a very detailed diary about his life. Do you have any idea who I'd be talking about? No. 1980 serial killer. They're both men, not a couple.
1: Not a couple. Are, are they from like the California area? Yes. Are they like the, the, uh, the, the, goodness, the, the stranglers, the, the things, the guys?
0: Uh, not Otis.
1: I don't know that. (laughs) Nope.
0: This is Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Oh, good. Someone you don't know about. So this week is going to be double duty and discussing the pasts of these two. So like every single episode, we're going to start at the beginning. And we're going to start by discussing our videographer, Leonard Thomas Lake. Born October 29th, 1945 at St. Francis Hospital in San Francisco, which we know was the mecca of serial killers in the u.s from like the 70s to the 90s something in the water he was the first of several children to elgin and gloria lake uh this couple was pretty unhappy now mind you this is after world war ii ended and the u.s was just overall just having a good celebration first world war we won that (laughs) Uh, but this couple just didn't seem to like each other and you'd think that would stop them from having sex, but uh, not really, because five years later, they had Leonard's sister, Gloria. And then one year after that, his brother, David, shortly after the birth of David, uh, when Leonard was almost seven years old, Elgin was like, I'm pretty tired of all the drunk fights, so I'm going to leave. And he heads to Seattle, Washington. Now, as a single mom with three kids, Gloria is kind of struggling, especially because two of them are under two. She has to move the kids into the projects. They all suffer from food insecurity. They can't afford medicine. Uh, After a couple months of this, Gloria's like, you know what? I'm going to head to Seattle to try and make things work with my husband. So she leaves Leonard with his grandparents and takes the two babies with her. Now, Gloria said that Leonard, she asked him if he wanted to leave and go to Seattle. And she says he didn't want to leave his grandparents. Mm. But at the train station, Leonard was super upset He begged his mom not to be left behind, clinging to her skirt and just sobbing. They had to pry him away from her. This was definitely very traumatic to Leonard and planted Definitely the seed of insecurity in his life when it came to adults. Now, worst of all, Gloria managed to get Elgin to take her back. And they moved back to San Francisco about a year later. But they didn't come back for Leonard. What? And they left him at his grandparents' house indefinitely.
1: What was was wrong with Leonard? Why? Why?
0: He was the young, He was the oldest.
1: Yes, yeah, so? he's so, a little kid? Well,
0: Elgin and Gloria's relationship didn't last, and they broke up by 1956. Gloria gets remarried. Leonard is invited to that wedding, but at 11 years old, he's, like, still kind of, like, not really vibing with his mom, mm-hmm. and he refused to go to her new wedding. Gloria would then go on and have two more daughters, uh, but Leonard actually really liked his half-sisters, uh, Janet and Betty, so... In fact, like during their relationship, he opened up a lot about how he was the only one who seems to like remember how awful it was to live in the projects and how they never had any food and how it was a terrible time. Mm. He didn't have any toys. Um, Life with his grandparents offered stability, though. They weren't rich, but he never went without anything. He had his own room and toys and clothes. He got an allowance. He went to summer camp, got to swim at Lakes. Uh, later on, Gloria asked him, "Did she want? Did he want to move in with her?" And he was worried that she wouldn't be able to afford five kids, and they'd have to be poor again. Mm-hmm. So he was like, "No."
1: <laughs> He's smart.
0: You know, just proof of what they discussed: being poor is traumatic. Uh, at his grandparents' house, he was a pretty normal kid. Although once he did set fire to one of it, part of his room, but it's because he had a chemistry set, and he was just wilding out with the chemistry <laughs> okay, at okay. eight or nine. Now, the thing that he did do that is weird and serial killer-esque is that he got two mice. And when you have two mice and they're in the same tank and they're a boy and a girl, Mm -hmm. they make more mice. Right, right. And so they kept reproducing until he had a small little colony. And his grandparents were like, okay, you have to get rid of like this teeming pile of mice. (laughs) So he gave away some of them. He sold some of them. And then he used his chemistry set to try and dissolve the majority of them. Oh, no. He had a cousin named Chester Richardson who talked about remembering that the bodies would turn this strange green color as his cousin was trying to destroy the bodies. Now, Leonard was an okay brother to everybody except his youngest brother, uh, Donald who had suffered a brain injury and was a little bit slow. Mm. Leonard said he had no use for incompetence, and he sort of internalized his time in the projects with his mom. And since Donald needed Social Security disability and would need it his whole life, Leonard treated him pretty crappy, and he decided that anybody who took government handouts should be punished, and he told everybody this. He even told his one sister that he wanted to poison the water supply specifically of people who were on welfare. He told his own brother he was a leech and didn't deserve to be alive. Wow. Uh, As to be expected, their relationship non-existent. By the time Leonard was about 18, he started to focus on some of his dark fantasies. He was really into the book The Collector by John Fowles, Hmm. which I'm sure everybody knows. But if you don't, it is a book about a psychopath who kidnaps and tortures women. Leonard thought this was a great book, and he daydreamed about what it would be like to enslave a woman and keep her locked up and completely under his control. As he hits 18, he's very happy that he's financially secure with his grandparents, but he wants to go out on his own. So right after high school, he joins the military. January 27th, 1964, he enlists in the Marines, and he did pretty well there. He went through basic training, was interested in all forms of chemical warfare as weaponry. Then he graduates... And he goes to do a specialized class to become a radar technician, gets sent to uh, Cap Lejeune in North Carolina, where he takes more classes on how aircraft radar works. On his weekends, he'd go to see his family he had in North Carolina. And one weekend, he meets this girl named Karen Lee Minersman. She was the daughter of one of his uncle's friends, and they both really liked each other. And they would send letters back and forth to each other. She lived in Delaware. He was in California. Mm. This is going super good for Leonard. And then President Lyndon Johnson decides he wants America to be part of the Vietnam War. They send thousands of young men into Vietnam. Leonard gets deployed to Southeast Asia just before Christmas of 1965. And he spent a year there. He and Karen tried to keep up their talks, but it was a lot harder back then to keep in touch during military time. The letters really stopped and Leonard had a terrible time this first tour Mm. so much that for a while he referred to it as that country. Oh, now towards the end of 1966, he gets reassigned to Port Mugu Naval Air Station in California and he starts thinking about Karen again, though he doesn't really have like the confidence to like go after her. So it takes about two years for them to kind of start their long distance romance again. Karen was profoundly lonely, and she told him that even though she was 20 years old now, she still felt a lot like a kid, and she thought she needed some kind of a mentor, and maybe Leonard could be that for her. Leonard's like, you want me to be in charge? (laughs) Nice. Oh, God. He's like, I can. my fantasies can be from real now. He takes a flight to see her in Delaware, March of 69. He used all of his military leave to go be with her. And at the end of that trip, he proposed, she accepts they head back to California together. Mm-hmm. Karen remembers these first few months is kind of weird. Um, Leonard would like make jokes in front of her and his like Marine friends and like be like, haha, I'm going to sell you to one of these guys. Um, she was confused as to whether it was just weird humor. Did he really want her to be a prostitute? He very much pushed her to wear, like, more and more villain clothes. He wanted to be domineering in their relationship, which he had never told her about before this. Mm. That was entirely in his head. In their letters, he was just super sweet. Uh, He definitely immediately jumped into, I'm the master and you're my slave. And Karen tried to do what he wanted, but it was definitely very off-putting. Thankfully, they didn't have much time together as a couple because he ended up volunteering to go back to Vietnam halfway through 1970. Who
1: volunteers to go back?
0: (laughs) A lot of people. Karen lived with his grandparents during this time period. And this time, Leonard said that he really enjoyed his time in Vietnam. And the worst thing he had to do during his second tour is just close body bags. Now, this time he became sort of fixated on the idea that Karen was cheating on him while he was in the war. And he was sure he was going to get a Dear John letter. Now, most of the time when guys felt really like awful, they would like set up a meeting with the chaplain. But Leonard wasn't really into religion. So he actually ended up going to the military mental health doctor. And that doctor diagnosed him with impending schizophrenia and hysterical neuroses and recommended he need to go back to California and go into a treatment facility. So they sent him back home
1: probably should have went to church
0: <laughs> really that's what we're gonna say here <laughs> that? i mean no probably not <laughs> at first he wasn't even gonna go see a doctor but then this weird situation happened he broke into a storage unit one night and he told karen he was looking for government secrets he ended up not finding what he wanted he came home he blamed the fact that he couldn't find it on diarrhea he ate all the chocolate in the house telling his wife that it would cause constipation and then he could go back to the storage unit to look for what he wanted. That was a problem. So he was evaluated and it was determined that he was a danger to himself and others and he was committed for two months. During the examinations at the hospital, they pretty much told the military he can't go back to war. Mm. He's done for. And they discharged him in January of 1971. After two months in the hospital, Leonard and Karen moved to San Jose and they bought a house. Karen said it was pretty normal there for the first couple weeks. Both she and Leonard enrolled in a local junior college. Leonard looked for new work, but he could only find part time stuff. Uh, After really struggling to make money, he goes, you know, Karen, there's a tapas bar down the street. You should go work there. She didn't really want to. But after a little while, she was like, oh, this might be a good this. I mean, this could be good money. So she auditioned, got hired and started working there like 50 hours a week. Oh, damn. Leonard stopped looking for work and instead stayed home where he grew an organic garden. Come
1: on.
0: Come on. You know, this is this is not going to be a good dude. So while Karen's being the sole winner of the family, which he hated. He decides he wants to be in control again.
1: You shouldn't have told her to go get a job and you not look for a job.
0: Well, he started like open handed, like hitting her. So he didn't leave marks to get her to do what he wanted. And then he would like ask her like, oh, do you like that? And then he would make her have sex with him. No, he would take all her money and demanded she would take erotic photos for him. He filled books with pictures of his first wife. Then he told her that he couldn't reach orgasm anymore with just her. And so he needed to like swing and be with other couples. Karen's like, all right. So they did end up like swinging with a couple of different couples. His paranoia flares up. He would start, he, he would do things like when it was time to like buy, get the phone. Mm-hmm. He used a fake name for the phone company. He had a lot of guns in the house and he made her read The Collector oh, to explain. like This is like the best book ever. You have to read it. Karen is tired. Obviously. So in the the clincher for Karen, though, was that November of 1971, she was leaving the bar to walk to her car. And one of the patrons of the bar was like, hey, I could give you a ride home. And she was just like, I have a car. Leonard was there in his truck watching just watching the parking lot and saw this and he like got out of the car and started yelling at her and so then she's just like whatever he's like screaming threatening to kick her out of the house she gets into her car calmly and drives home he speeds home first locks all the doors throws all of her stuff out into the front yard so she Calmly puts all the stuff in the trunk of her car, sleeps in her car for the night. The next day she goes to work. While she's at the club, Leonard breaks into her car and messes up a lot of her clothes. For the next week, she worked and slept in the camper that they had in their yard. And then on her next payday, she immediately got an apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, Leonard harassed her nonstop. He even broke into her apartment multiple times, burned holes in her stuff, left threatening messages. He would call her and then he would be like, you know, first you went to the grocery store this morning and then you stopped by the mail. Like he would give her a play by play of her entire day.
1: Yes, I know what I did. To let her know
0: that he knew what she was doing.
1: Congratulations. You can keep track of me. Good Good job.
0: Karen filed for divorce and it was granted in 1972. Janet told police, that's his half-sister Janet, mm-hmm. that the only time she ever saw her brother cry was when the divorce was finalized. He calls it! Well, Leonard added Karen to the list of women in his life who, just like his mother, abandoned him.
1: You pushed her away,
0: you <laughs> <laughs> Brian, very frustrated to anyone listening. He's just kind of staring at the sky right now upset. <laughs> Either way, Leonard starts posting personal ads. He meets a girl named Jennifer Gordon, and they become a couple in October of 72. She said he was kind and sweet at first, and then he got very sexually aggressive. He eventually talked her into doing prostitution to pay for their livelihood. He also took loads of pictures of her, too. When Jennifer decided to quit prostituting herself, that's when the relationship sorry, did like, turn sour. She realized that he was dangerous when he started talking about how he wanted to make a snuff film where and he explained to her that a snuff film was where a couple would have sex and one of them killed the other right as they climaxed she wasn't really all that happy about that and then they got into an argument it got physical and he pinned her to the floor and she moved out the next day smart he was alone again and now it's june of 1973 Leonard got real weird, though, alone. He started like kind of switching between two fantasies. He wanted to have a sex slave, but he also was sure there was going to be a nuclear holocaust. And that meant he had to build a bunker. He ended up going to Ukiah, which is about 130 miles north of San Francisco. He took classes at the local college on animal science and meat cutting, and he became a laborer building low income housing. He again moves in with another woman and begins mooching off of her in 1974. She had a cabin at Greenfield Ranch, which was this 5,600 acre ranch near uh, Calpella, north of Ukiah. Folks called it the ranch and it was for pretty much anybody who wanted to go back to nature. Everybody there gave themselves like fake names and the homeowner at the cabin called herself Venus. Venus and Leonard met each other at like a music festival. Mm. It started out normal Leonard showed her all these photos of his exes like to show that he was like a very serious photographer. Um, She realized that he had some serious issues when he said that the reason his mom left him was that it was because of his brother and he wanted to kill his brother. He told her he was going to build a bomb shelter. And since Venus was kind of a hippie, she didn't think that was a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. He tried, but literally he made the equivalent of like a root cellar. I mean, after some time, Venus realized that Leonard was just using her to live there and build a bunker on her property. So she confronted him and he pushed her off of a ladder. Oh, no. She was super scared. So she allowed Leonard to buy her out of the property and she never looked back.
1: Okay, cool. <laughs> just, just take it. Just Yeah, she's give, like, you
0: know what? You're good. Give me money. Give me my portion of this you know communal property that even though i bought it outright i should technically have all the money for but she took what she could get and she left leonard made everybody uncomfortable and he would show off these books of photos like i said he considered himself to be a kind of a pornographer he propositioned women in the community he repeatedly offended all of his nevers began trying to indulge in his desire for young women now, it's 1979 now. He is 34 years old, going bald, and he would unabashedly flirt with any teen girl he could find. Oh, God. He would get teen girls and their parents to agree to, like, a photo shoot that was tame. And then later on, he would, like, try and convince the teen on her own to come back and do another kind of photo shoot. He would tell her that these were, like, more artistic. But she had to be nude and maybe he would like make her wear like wings or paint her green or something, you know. So it seemed like it was real art and Mm -hmm. not just nudie magazine. And the thing about this is so interesting is. He was not like oblivious. We know this because he recorded himself talking about like his feelings about things. He was strangely self-aware. He said that he liked 16- and 22-year-olds with small breasts, but that his perfect age for a woman was 22. But he knew that no woman who looked like what he wanted would want him. Like, there's a whole, like, audio where he just sits and talks about, like, the fact that, like, no, like, hot young 22-year-old's really going to want him. Uh, yeah, you're old
1: 34-year-old man, so no, no one's going to, no, no.
0: Well, so he dates a daughter of one of his friends. Her name is Darlene um, when she's 16. And he's definitely grooming her like he knew her when they when they when she was little. And he proposed to her in 1980. But Darlene tells him she wants to be 18 before she gets married. And the two of them sneak around town and have sex and cars and things until Darlene's parents are just like, no. Mm-hmm. And they send her away to boarding school to get her away from Leonard. It didn't help. They continued to write to each other oh my God. for years um, Now at the ranch. Leonard can always find women to have sex with him, even women he didn't particularly prefer. We didn't really have a word for it yet at the time, but Leonard was a stalker mm. and everybody talked about how weird he was. He ended up bothering this woman named Pamela who like worked at a bar in town about modeling for him and he would stop by her store and he would find her whenever she was in town and finally she like agreed to hang out with him where he showed her books of girls as young as 10 and 12 in the nude for his art. Pam wasn't impressed. So Leonard turned his sights to her younger sister Tracy He stalked Tracy, too, until Pam reported him to the local sheriff, who was just like, you need to, like, cool it. Mm -hmm. Also, while Leonard is at the ranch, there are many mysterious burglaries. And these burglars only wanted ammunition, guns, dynamite, power tools, and chainsaws. Everything you might possibly need to create a bunker. Now, there was a ban on weapons at the ranch, though. Leonard definitely like flaunted this. He didn't care. And in 1980, one of his neighbors challenged him on it. And while on his porch, he screamed that he could kill everybody on the ranch with an automatic weapon and nobody would even know he was coming. Um. Shortly after, a storage shed on his property caught fire. Which just happened to be the storage shed that had a lot of stolen ammunition in it and it an exploded. Yeah which is when the ranch asked him to leave. They had proof of his thievery and they actually put him in jail. Um, There, he told himself he would never go back to prison again. And when he got out, he sold his property and moved in with this new young girlfriend who he met at a festival who went by the name Cricket. She's really important to this story because Cricket was in her early 20s and she was actually into a lot of the kinky sex stuff that Leonard wanted her to be into. And there's a belief that because she was open to his experimentation, he didn't have to force her into it. Mm-hmm. It made him want to do weirder things.
1: Oh, you you just gave him an inch, and he's taking a mile.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, when I say that he swore to himself he'd never go back to prison, he started wearing every he started wearing like a like a thing every day, and in it he kept a cyanide tab.
1: Oh, with
0: the intention that if he ever really got caught up again, he was going to take it and kill himself.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: so Cricket and Leonard live at this motel in a city named Philo. Cricket takes a job as an assistant teacher, which is what she had been doing before. Mm. Leonard was happy uh, because the hotel they were staying at needed an on-site manager. It was perfect. Leonard put an ad in the Bay Guardian looking for someone to relocate to a small town to help with running a motel. A girl by the name of Connie Richards accepts this job. Originally, it was just to clean the motel, but it very quickly became Leonard wants to have threesomes. Um, she wasn't really into it, but she did like cricket. He wanted to film her, but Connie was like, oh, no. Hmm. While this is going on, Leonard is still writing letters to Darlene at boarding school. Oh my God. Telling her he's making porn now with his new girlfriend and that they thought they could make money. Connie just was trying to do her job. She did occasionally have sex with the couple, both together and individually. Mm-hmm. It was a very bizarre arrangement. Uh, Cricket and Leonard got married September 13th, 1981. Uh, when Connie decided it was time to leave Philo after a very weird year, uh, Leonard had kept in touch with some of his military friends. And they he learned that a fellow Marine was facing a court martial, and the Hoa Bay. It's a base in Hawaii and he needed a place to hide and that marine was Charles Ng and he showed up at Philo to work the motel and stay off the radar. He's about 5'8 very fit and deeply into survivalism just like Leonard. Oh nice. They also shared the same darkness that Leonard did too but uh, we'll talk about that a little later. Right now we're going to talk about Charles Ng he who gets- was born <laughs> Charles chitat ning uh december 24th 1960 and british hong kong uh, to kenneth ing and oi ping the two wanted a son but they had two daughters alice and betty kenneth did make a lot of money and he felt compelled to help out all of his family so on top of his wife and three kids he also housed his two grandmothers and two aunts in a two-bedroom apartment wow very generous uh, it was hard, but Kenneth worked very hard, and he did slowly begin to make a better life for his family. He bought a car, which was consumed to be—it was supposed to be like the ultimate luxury in like nineteen sixties Hong Kong, which actually made a lot of the people that live near them think that they were way more wealthy than they actually were. In fact, I saw uh, some articles mm. say that the the Ing family was more was a wealthy family, but that's not true. He may have given off some of the uh, airs. He bought a piano for the kids so they could all learn. They went on family trips to the countryside in the car. Even though uh, Charles was the youngest, he looked out for his sisters. He would make them after school snacks. Uh, He would fan them when it was hot in their room so they could go to sleep first. Hmm. As a young boy, he got into martial arts. He was very into Bruce Lee. His parents wouldn't allow him to have real weapons in the house, so he would make his own nunchucks. Then he also would, like, fill a sack with sand and attach it to the wall and punch it. Charles' mom really wasn't feeling this. She was just like, he's going to want to fight, like, everybody. (laughs) So she would try and get him to focus on school. Now, Kenneth thought Catholic school was the best, so he went above and beyond to get his kids in different Catholic schools. He called the headmasters and pretty much begged to let the children in. Now, Alice went to a mission school called Mary Knoll. Betty was accepted to St. Paul Convent, and Charles was accepted into St. Joseph's. These are all Catholic schools in Hong Kong. Alice and Betty did pretty good, but Charles did not. Uh, unlike today's world of No Child Left Behind, if you didn't make the grades, they just kicked you out. Mm. Kenneth started beating his son with a cane when he would learn about like failed tests or missed homework. And later on, after this all exploded and they tracked down Kenneth and Oi Peng to interview them, Kenneth actually talked about whether he wasn't sure if he had done the right thing. He knew that he'd done it out of love, but he admitted it wasn't the best way to teach a child. Um, His mother thought that she had done some things that had contributed to Charles' horrible behaviors later in life. She said that Charles used to have a pet chicken that he loved, and her mother hated the chicken and thought it stunk up the place and that they should eat it. Mm-hmm. so when his pet chicken became a meal he was devastated he also had a turtle and he refused to keep it in a cage and it was also smelly and walked all around the house and they made him release it back into nature he tried to bring a dog home they didn't allow that either so his mother uh, oi ping wondered if not allowing him to have some kind of companionship had hurt him in the long run The beatings made him only super introverted. He barely spoke to anyone other than his sister, Betty, and an older cousin named Benny, who was like a brother to him. He'd stay in his room alone just reading. He ended up having to get glasses that were pretty strong prescription. He was a talented artist one time, or he was a talented artist as a kid, and one time he ended up leaving his art supplies on the street when he was getting picked up from school, and his mom wouldn't let him go back to get it, and that like really crushed him. While Charles was a child, Kenneth joined the military. And Charles thought that was pretty cool, seeing mm. his dad walk around in his military uniform. Now, everything's cool until so Charles is about ten years old, and then he is off the rails. Oh like think of all the worst things you want your kid to do, and he's doing them. Like his parents actually seek a psychiatrist for him. So he starts stealing. But that was the, the, the final straw. Mm-hmm. He would attack foreign children's in the local parks. He learned how to make Molotov cocktails. And then he would throw them from the roof of their apartment building. He just set fires in general, including at school, and would just break stuff. He wrote his teacher an obscene letter. And they were just like, this is too much. So the school expelled him at 15. And Charles' dad sent him away from Hong Kong to his brother Rufus' house. Rufus lived in Preston, England. And Betty was already there because she had been accepted into an English secondary school. Rufus was okay with that. But he really didn't like the idea of a second kid having to come live in his house. Right. Kenneth managed to get Charles into an all-boys prep school. And he lived on campus there Monday through Friday at the High Bentham Grammar School. And he only needed to be at Rufus' house for two nights a week. Not didn't bad. matter rufus really wasn't vibing here that's not
1: this is not bad it's only two days
0: well uh his mom Oi Peng, visits and she sees the situation and she's like okay charles is not making this up this is definitely there's some hostility here from my brother-in-law she points she, she points out to rufus that he doesn't even have like a, a warm place to sleep mm. and she's like it's obvious he's not eating enough and rufus is like well you know what I don't want to be a guardian. So, Oipeng takes both Betty and Charles back home. The family spoke to an aunt who was living in San Leandro, California. And Aunt Alice agrees to let Charles live with her and attend Notre Dame College. He's 19 now. Okay, Uh, He gets a student visa. He arrives in 1979. He moved into a college dorm in the fall and absolutely hated it. He didn't even give college a chance. And before he can tell anybody else, he applies to join the Marines. Now, here's the thing. In the U.S. now, if you're an immigrant, you can apply to be in the Marines or you can to be in the military and you can get citizenship. Mm -hmm. In 1979, they didn't do that. He had to forge documents that said that he was born in America. He said he was born in Bloomington, Indiana. And no one really checked. This would be a big issue later because he gets in trouble in the military and people asked repeatedly after the trial that is the most ridiculous thing we've probably listened to why didn't they deport him multiple times they had the opportunity to deport him and he probably wouldn't have been involved in this right right but charles said the recruiting agent was so desperate to make his numbers that he helped charles fake the documents
1: oh goodness
0: Charles goes into the Marines. He adapts very quickly. He starts uh, advanced infantry training at Camp Pendleton. He learns how to survive any terrain. He starts reading about survivalism. He's very much a loner. Uh, He really identifies with the Marine Corps motto, Semper Fidelis or Semper Fi, always faithful. Mm -hmm. Uh, As my father has told me many times, once a Marine, always a Marine. Okay. Okay and so uh, that mattered a lot to Charles didn't matter as much to Leonard but mattered a lot to Charles he made a couple friends they bonded over like like in Bruce Lee Kung Fu Uh, Charles would show off at the bar with other Marines by having them hold a pencil and he would like fan kick it without like hitting anybody or hurting anybody that's awesome (laughs) He left the training at the base in Southern California. He was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 3rd Marine Regiment Weapons Company at the Marine Corps Station, Kanehoa Bay, Hawaii. Hmm. It's on the Moka, uh, Mokapu Peninsula, and it's a base with about 5,000 Marines on it. Uh, Ng trained as a gunner, and the gunners uh, usually be about would prep anti-tank missile devices. According to his higher officers, he wasn't like a rock star, but he did what he was told. Uh, If he made a mistake, he quickly fixed it. He never complained. They did say he was very good with handling weapons. Uh, And they also liked that, unlike a lot of other Marines on base, he didn't chase women, do drugs, or get wasted every weekend. Nice. Okay. So when you leave uh, the base, which all the Marines call K-Bay, you have to take a 20-mile drive to Honolulu. Charles didn't really... Do that trip a whole lot. Occasionally he'd go to a party here or there, but it wasn't his style. Uh survivalism was a big thing back then. It's funny because it's still kind of a big thing now, only Mm. we call it doomsday preppers now. (laughs) And so he would he bonded over that. Some uh some of the other Marines were like, yo, how do you fight like that? And so he would show them like his kung fu moves he learned as a kid. Uh interestingly enough, his friends were kind of weirded out by the fact that he never talked about women. And one of his friends, Mark Novak, wondered if Charles was gay or bisexual. And it really wasn't that. He just preferred talking about guns to talking about women.
1: Like, why I got to talk about women all the time? Like,
0: Well, I guess when you're on, like, a base full of dudes. Because okay, I, I, I don't think there were that many women in the military back then. There
1: are other things to talk about.
0: Well, apparently all Charles wanted to talk about was guns and fighting. Everything's going great for this kid. And then he gets it in his mind that he's going to steal from the military everybody had to do armory duty and keep watch and so charles was like what if we just steal like a little bit of weapons some of the valuable ones and sell them he tells one of his friends vic mowry about this vic's like that's definitely lucrative so just after midnight october 10th a couple minutes before his friend lance corporal williamson started his watch charles is like yo if something happens at the armory Would you, like, do anything? And Williamson is just like, what? I don't care. Don't involve me in this. (laughs) Charles is like, listen, would you tell anybody you saw me inside the armory during your watch? And Williamson definitely thinks this is a joke. And it's like, yeah, no, I wouldn't say anything. So then Charles tells Williamson the plan. Even offers Williamson a cut. And he's like, I'm good. No, thanks. Vic, they pretty much decide it has to happen that night. So Vic and Charles successfully steal a bag of weapons. He involved way too many people, though. Three days later, the Naval Investigation Service arrests him, uh, arrests him, (laughs) charge him with conspiracy to commit larceny of military weapons, theft of weapons, including a machine gun, grenade launcher, rifle and pistol, and burglary to commit theft. The total value of the missing weapons was $11,000. Charles was sure that one of his team of thieves had betrayed him. So he flipped on everybody.
1: No, you just told me you if you were people. involved
0: in it at all, if you helped him like hide him, anything, he told on everybody. And so they told him, you know, thanks for telling us all this. If you get convicted, you'll do less time than everybody else. So it's Friday, November 13th, 1981. They come and get him and take him to the NIS office to be interrogated that goes on all day until about 2 30 in the morning Hmm. now mind you the only way to get back to the base is that bus Right, right and it's 2 30 there's no bus running so they just take him back to the office to wait you know he had two guards but they had not been informed that he might be a runaway like he might have a chance to run away he'd been so cooperative up until this point The one guard goes into the office to make a phone call, and the other guard nodded off. Charles climbs out a window that had been left open, runs to a friend's house, tells him he's being framed for weapons theft. His friend lets him sleep there, gives him civilian clothes, lies when NIS calls and asks him, then drives him out into the wilderness to camp out. They put out a reward for his capture, $500. He ends up camping out for a while and then getting to Mark Novak. He calls his parents at Mark's house. His parents send him $300. He buys clothes and a backpack, gets a plane ticket to San Francisco, stays with his aunt in San Liedro until a friend tells him that Leonard Lake is in Philo and he could hide out there for a couple months. Hmm. Almost as soon as Charles arrives, Cricket and Leonard give up the motel management job. There was a woman nearby who was looking to start a youth camp on her property called the Indian Creek Ranch. She had a secluded area with a bunch of one-story wooden cabins and buildings, a barn she used as a workshop, and it was deep in the woods. She trusted Leonard because he'd been in the military and he was a survivalist, and he'd managed a hotel. So you could, of course, handle a kid's camp.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the kind of person you want to run a kid's camp, someone in the military, right?
0: Well, the hotel manager was like, thank God. (laughs) Because he had gotten all these reports about Leonard, like, peeping. On people because, like, they had um hot tubs. Oh, and god. so sometimes people would be in the hot tubs naked and they would like look up and there would be Leonard from a balcony. Oh my god, hey, <laughs>
1: hey, uh, weirdo. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, do, you, do you got like want to join binoculars? What, 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 He's what he boy. What you want
0: <laughs> now? One weird factor about this time period is that both Charles and Leonard wore camo all the time. Mm-hmm. Charles never spoke, not even telling other people that it was his 21st birthday on December 24th, 1981. Now, the FBI got word that the military fugitive Charles Ng was in Philo. And they it takes a couple months, but they have this huge sting April 29th, 1982. Leonard tells them that Charles is just a guy working for him doing menial labor. Charles runs off into the woods. They take Leonard to jail, find all sorts of weapons that Leonard is not supposed to have, including TNT, full-auto rifles, lots of ammunition. Leonard's like, look, we're just survivalists. But like, they're like, you still can't have all this stuff. Mm. They can't find Charles and they detain Cricket. Leonard tells them that Ing had sent the dynamite from Hawaii. He didn't. Uh, Leonard did not care about being a good friend or a marine. He just straight up lied. He told them that Charles had a Mac Ten, and they ripped the can apart, looking camp apart, looking for it. Cricket played dumb, and she was allowed to stay at the camp. She, of course, immediately drove to Ukiah, Ukiah, and posted bail mm-hmm. for her husband. The cops get a search warrant. They still can't find Charles. Eventually, one of the neighbors is like, oh, I saw an Asian guy climbing out of the attic one time. So they go up to the attic and they do find the MAC-10. They don't find Charles yet. Mm -hmm. They charge Leonard with 17 felonies. Leonard thought about taking that cyanide (laughs) pill. He was sitting there. But he was just like, you know what? I'm going to do like Charles and I'm going to run. So he skips his court date. And Cricket thinks about it and agrees to be with her husband.
1: Oh, really? Wow. So they
0: go on the run. Eventually they capture Charles in the wilderness and he gets sent back to K Bay to answer for his crimes. Mm -hmm. Now while that's going on, Leonard, Darlene's out of high school. And so they meet up. Oh. He tells Darlene, listen, Cricket's moved to San Francisco to be with this bisexual couple. She doesn't want to hide with me anymore. He would drive around the Bay Area meeting other women for sex, selling weed to survive. Somehow, Leonard kept all of this stuff from his family, though Janet did know that he was on the run from the cops.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, mind you, he's talked about how much he can't stand Donald and how Donald is a leech on society, right? Right, right. Well, Donald needs to go to Northern California to do a job interview for a house sitting job, and they asked Leonard to take him, and he agreed.
1: <sighs> Why would you ask that guy?
0: And Donald Lake was never seen ever again. I, I,
1: I'm sorry. Oh, I bet I hit my mic.
0: Yep, Leonard killed his brother, assumed his identity, got a new driver's license it's- under the name Donald Lake and everything, and began taking his SS. To- Uh, DI checks.
1: Now, for someone who complains about his brother being a a leech, he's been a leech the whole fucking time.
0: Not only that, but like now you're going to take the checks that you said made your brother a degenerate.
1: Yeah. So, so. Wow. What makes you better? What, what made you better? I don't, I don't get it.
0: Well, on New Year's Day, 1983, Leonard starts keeping a daily journal, which is why we know so much about him now. He talked about he saw prostitutes. He made plans to videotape more women. He discussed wanting a new weapons cache. He still wanted to create that bunker and have loads of young, hot ladies in it. He was very upset that Cricket broke up with him. Uh, and he like makes a point to go, like, just because you broke your vows doesn't mean that I broke mine. My vows are till death.
1: Yeah, my vows aren't till you get, like, you, you pull me into some fucking, like, criminal stuff.
0: Well, somehow he robes Cricket back in because in 1980, like March of 1983, he starts writing about how they're having like such great hot sex all the time.
1: In his mind, maybe.
0: April, he buys a car off of his friend, a yellow VW van, loads up all his stuff. That friend is Charles Gunner, who he would eventually murder. But uh, he pays about a month's rent, moves in with Charles. Charles has a wife and two kids. Now they have a previous relationship where at one point Charles was kind of into the whole like cuckold thing Mm. and he didn't want to see Vicky have sex with other people, but he wanted to hear about it. Okay. So Vicky and Leonard do have that previous sexual relationship from that part. Uh, But during this time period, Leonard's actually really upset. Like Vicky had dipped because she was tired of her husband being in a weird stuff. And, (laughs) Leonard writes about how Gunner is very abusive towards his daughter and even says something along the lines of the house wouldn't get cleaned if he didn't make his daughters do it.
1: Hmm.
0: In May, Leonard convinces a woman he knew in town who (laughs) worked as a clown to pose for him. She gets friendly and he ends up asking her to look after Gunner's kids. The only thing in the diary mentioned about Charles Gunner at this point now is. Charles stayed up north. I have the children for a while. Because what happened here is that, you know, every year you got to recertify that SSDI. You got to fill out paperwork. Mm -hmm. He can't, of course, do that paperwork. So he's tossing the ID for David and now taking on Charles ID. Oh, my
1: God. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. He tells Vicky, listen, Charles isn't coming back. And she's just like, he loves the kids, though. He's going to come back. He's like, listen, I got a videotape of him hitting one of the girls. I told him to get out of here. She doesn't really believe it, but she's like, fine. I won't divorce him. Because he's saying like, hey, we're still living in the house. If you divorce him, now we got to move out. You'd make it awkward for the rest of us who Mm -hmm. all live here. Flashback over to Charles Ng, who's in Leavenworth now in Texas. He'd been there. He'd been sent there in 1982. He plea bargained uh best he could and got 18 months both leonard and charles send letters back and forth uh he sends pictures of him and cricket and all the girls he was hanging out with uh his time in prison is pretty bland he doesn't get any trouble around 1984 uh leonard starts sending him pictures about a bunker and it looks like it's starting to come together oh awesome he's very I, he's very interested in the torture room with the cameras that Leonard told him about. Why would you need a bunk? Why would you need a torture room in a bunker? For the women, Brian. We a to torture room. Wh- For the women. <sighs> now, he also starts up like a pen pal relationship with this lady in Kentucky named Sally Jean Pyle. She was in her 40s and just wanted somebody to take care of her. Her son had been murdered and she had gotten raped like in the same year. And her husband had like blamed her and left. God so, uh, Sally was struggling. It was horrible. so Leonard managed to convince Cricket and her father to let him put the bunker on their land in Calaveras County. as soon as they moved in in October of eighty three he started looking for girls. He puts up ads, women respond in his diary, he talked a lot about how the world was ending and that the local sheriffs were watching him remnants of his old paranoia returning at this point he uh is cashing gunner's checks but paperwork had arrived that he couldn't forge so he had to drop gunner as a identity
1: question his brother Mm -hmm. is nobody looking for his brother now
0: they'll mention it
1: not at all just okay
0: yeah, at this point, Donald's been missing for a while.
1: is just, just like, he's gone. Like, he's, just, he's not house-sitting for, like, ever.
0: Well, I think the other situation, too, is, though, like... Once you, like... Someone missing now, there's ways to, like, talk to that. Or, you know, like, get yeah. the information out. But, like, he was probably just listed as a missing person. And because he was considered to be slow... They might have thought that he just like wandered off then and it, got lost.
1: Didn't ask Leonard like.
0: Which does happen.
1: Okay. Yeah, true. But no, no one asked Leonard like, hey, you're supposed Leonard, to bring. It.
0: Leonard was like, I dropped him off at the house like you told me to. you fucking liar.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 I'm done questioning.
0: <laughs> now, the interesting thing is that the locals only knew Leonard as Mr. Gunner. And they thought he seemed like a nice guy, even though he still would get into it with the neighbors. January of 84, he starts building the bunker of his dreams. He fills his journal with construction progress. He sold all the stuff that he acquired legally and illegally to afford it. Cricker gets a new boyfriend. Leonard is so happy. He's like, whatever. I hope this new boyfriend treats her better. (laughs) So do I. Uh, Leonard had an encounter with a gay guy who ended up like giving him oral Contemplates killing that man and assuming his identity afterward. Oh
1: my fucking God, stop.
0: Just he like wrote about it in his journal. You own he was like, stuff. you know what? Very good at blowjobs. Might kill him later. Oh my God. Charles gets out uh Charles Ng gets out of Fort Leavenworth disciplinary barracks on June 29th nineteen eighty five. Sorry, it should be eighty four, but anyway, the government just set him free and definitely didn't deport him, even though
1: they should have definitely
0: should have. Yeah. Uh this provoked a lot of bad press. Uh, after he was discovered to be a serial killer. Mm -hmm. He went to go live with a former inmate in Oklahoma, and then he made plans to head to California to be with Leonard. But before he goes to the bunker, he wants to talk to Sally Jean Pyle. She comes with her sister to Oklahoma to meet him, it was a very cute, like it was a meet cute. They're both very lonely. They, neither of them had like touched a person of the opposite sex in years. So they had like a nice warm hug. Uh, the next morning, actually, Sally drove to pick him up from his friend's house. They ended up driving around for a while. They ended up getting a hotel room, having sex. They sat there and they talked for a while. And Sally was just like, ah, I'm old enough to be your mom. I'm still married. I got to stop this. She's like, I do care about you, but we got to end this.
1: Okay. So they did.
0: Charles left for California. Cricket picked him up at the San Francisco airport on July 29th. Now letter kept in his diary, all of the women he was just like having sex with. And he would, he was not an attractive man by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. He's very confident though. And, uh, charismatic and he he called all of the women like who he wanted to turn into his sex slaves that was project miranda and if he wanted to kill you and assume your identity he called that project fish oh and so those are the two codes that he uses in his book
1: project catfish got it
0: (laughs) i don't know um but as soon as charles got to the bunker site leonard stopped writing every day he said there was a two month break almost as immediately as soon as Charles got there. And he wrote that the two month break was to allow a period of time to pass. That was best left unrecorded.
1: Um, what happened in those two months?
0: Well, during that time is when the two began this pattern of rape, torture. They murdered men, women, and children. The first murders were Don Gioletti. He was a DJ from San Francisco and uh, there was an attempted murder on Richard Carrazzo, his roommate. They were shot by an Asian man wearing glasses who robbed them. Karazzo managed to survive. Uh, the description, however, of an Asian man in glasses didn't really help the police because a lot of the Asian people live in San Francisco.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's very hard to pin down where all of these murders happen, but the official victim list we have is Harvey Dubbs, Deborah Dubbs, Sean Dubbs, Lonnie Bond Jr., Sr., Brendan O'Connor, Lonnie Bond Jr., Clifford it Parento? Jeffrey Gerald, Michael Carroll, Kathleen Allen, and Scott Stapley. So Harvey and Sean were just the father and child that got uh, Lonnie and Lonnie. Same thing. Uh, Stapley, he was trying to steal. He did steal Stapley's identity. And I believe Clifford and Jeffrey, he tried to steal their identities. Now, the method here was case homes, kill the ch- children, the father, abduct the woman. The woman was then taken to the bunker for an extended period of time. She would be raped and just treated like a sex slave. We have video proof of this with 18 year old Kathleen Allen. She got abducted in April of 1985. She had a boyfriend who got himself in trouble, and she got a letter from him saying that he was in Lake Tahoe. He had been shot. His name was Mike Curl. And when she got there, it was really Leonard and Charles. They'd already killed him. Leonard filmed her saying that Mike owed them money and that he owned her now. The first video, he pretty much forces her to strip on camera, tells her they're going to have sex with her, so she might as well consent to it. And then they pretty much gave her the option of, we can kill you like your boyfriend, or you can be our sex slave. Oh, wow. Kill me. (laughs) They made multiple videos with her before she was murdered, but interestingly enough, none of them were of them physically assaulting her.
1: Wait, so... Yeah, so they were, and they he killed her anyway. Yes. <sighs> Yo.
0: Charles liked to take showers with the victims to make sure they were clean. Uh, both men did rape the victims. Um, did make them clean the ranch before eventually growing tired of them and shooting them and they'd be buried on the ranch. Now this isn't the original ranch. This is uh, the one owned by uh, Cricket's family. Right, right. This is the... Uh, it's Wilesville... I'm going to say this wrong uh, because I wrote Wileyville, but there's an S in there. Um, (laughs) But that's where they ended up building the bunker. They would go virtually undetected from 1983 to
1: 85.
0: Now, in July of 1984, the Dubs family completely disappeared from their home. They were not from around the region, the Wileyville region. They were from San Francisco. And one of their neighbors even drew a very convincing picture of Charles Ng, who she had seen skulking about the building. Mm -hmm. Uh, Irene Braun and uh, Inspector Glenn Pamphiloff were the police on the case. Deborah's father told them that Deborah had this like black suit that she always took on every trip that was still in the apartment. She had a medicine pouch that was still there too. The police found telephone cord that had been cut it was obvious that somebody had been bound. All of Harvey's shoes and clothes were still there. The police created this timeline where pretty much the perpetrator had to have talked his way into the apartment before the husband arrived, tied Deborah up, threatening the baby probably. And then when Harvey came home, he used the threat of violence against Deborah to keep him in line. Right, right. They thought that Charles Ng, who had been seen by two of the witnesses carrying this big black bag, might have been carrying one of the victims. Mm. They tried their best, but they wouldn't hear any more details about these characters for about nine more months. Now, there's a brief moment where Charles and Leonard move around San Francisco a lot. They barely had any money. So I'm wondering if this was during the time periods where Cricket and Leonard were on the outs. Hmm. And they had to find like boarding houses to live in or things like that. So they couldn't really do much there. Uh, cause they didn't have their place to, uh, torture people. After working like a couple months, uh, like minimum wage, they decided to try and get a legitimate job. Uh, Charles ends up getting the job. It's at the dentist moving company, September 10th, 1984. Um, he started the job September 28th. That was the same day uh, that Leonard started writing in his diary again. And he, all he wrote on September 28th was, "Operation Miranda went well, and that the perfect woman is a woman who is totally controlled." Oh God. Now Leonard did another bind again. He needs to find another identity. He had tried a couple times and failed to steal people's cars and credit cards. That's what happened with uh, Jeffrey and Clifford. November 9th was the last time he would write about his regular life. Christmas came and went. February 1st, Lonnie Bond and Brennan O'Connor move into a cabin near the walls near walls. Ugh, <laughs> I want to say Wileyville, but there's an S there. <laughs> they meet their neighbor going by the name of Charlie Gunner. Mm. Scott Stapley also moved into the area and he was a friend of Lonnie and Brenda. Kathleen, Kathleen Allen was their next victim. They killed her boyfriend, Mike, who Charles Ng knew from his time in prison. That murder of Mike happened in March. Uh, Kathy's abduction was April of 85. Leonard actually made her write letters to her family saying that she had moved away to Lake Tahoe with Mike. She would send a phone number and an address once they had gotten settled. Mm. That, of course, did not happen. They promised Kathy she'd be released if she complied with them, but she was murdered as well. And they didn't just bury the bodies. They burned and attempted to crush the the skeletons. And then that was put into like a mass grave.
1: Oh, oh. They
0: also buried all identification <sighs> on the property as well.
1: Goodness. How did they? Definitely.
0: Yep. Now, Lonnie Bond and Brenda O'Connor were kind of weirded out by their neighbor, Charles Gunner, but they had no idea how bad this was going to get. Leonard ended up telling Stapley's ex that he had died in a car accident and came and took all his stuff from the house. And that was stuff that he would go further away and sell because he had no job and he had to pay to live there. Mm
1: Mm hmm.
0: The families of the Connor and Baum family stopped getting mail from them. Uh, They were abducted in early May of 85. And when the local real estate agent like came by the house, it was completely empty. Oh, wow. So the real estate manager was just like, oh, I guess they just like skipped out and stopped paying me rent. And they left. They were already dead by then. Well, the rest of the family was dead. Mm -hmm. Mind you, they had a baby, too. The whole murdering people and stealing their money and selling their stuff in other cities was gone super good until about June 2nd of 1985. Yay. Charles and Leonard went to a supply store in South San Francisco to buy things. Now, I think unbeknownst to Leonard, Charles Ng had a bit of a klepto issue, even though he was still working at the moving company. And they had found a good way of murdering and torturing people and selling their stuff to make money. Mm -hmm. He still couldn't stop with the sticky fingers. So while they're in this supply store, Charles picks up a $75 vice and a employee sees him and calls the police. So as they're leaving the store, Charles tosses the vice into his truck. The police are there they see a 22 caliber pistol, which isn't an issue, but it has a silencer, and that's a felony. So Leonard tries to explain that he, was, he already bought the vice. It wasn't his. They're like, you need to stay out of this. What's your name, son? So he shows them the ID, which says Robin Stapley. And here's the problem. Uh... Scott Stapley was in his 20s. <laughs> Leonard... Is pushing 40.
1: I was about to say, yeah, he's older.
0: So he very, it's not, this ID is very clearly fake. It looks nothing like Stapley. It's, they check. Stapley's been missing for a few weeks now. The car Uh is registered to a man who had been missing since November 2nd, 1984, Paul Cosner. Uh The license plate belonged to Lonnie Bond, Uh who'd been missing for a month all these missing people all these missing people it's all a mess so leonard like the coward that he is tells the cops yeah my name is leonard lake that's charles ang don't let me out charles runs he is in the fucking wind okay so while they have leonard at the police station he asks for a piece of paper and a glass of water he writes a letter to cricket swallows the cyanide pill Adds his life. He was rushed to the hospital and they tried their best, but he died four days later on June 6th.
1: Mm.
0: With the car impounded, the cops look at it. They find blood, bullet holes, a stun gun, ammunition. They find an old utility bill in Cricket's name, her real name, which is Clarolyn Ballas's, and it has the Wallsyville address on it. Mm. So they contact Cricket and they're like, hey, who's this? And she's like, that's my husband. We never really got divorced, but I live in San Francisco. He lives out in the mountains at that property. So they're like, well, the property's still in your name. Cause your dad gave it to you. Can we check it? And she's like, yeah, I don't care. So they go in, they find all this video equipment that had been stolen from Harry dubs house a year before they find the cars from the bond family and the Stapley family. They go back and they see this bunker. Torture devices, women's clothing, makeup, a typed list of women's names and 21 different pictures of women in the nude. Ooh. Which, of course, now they have to set out finding, are all these women alive?
1: I'm just going to spoil alert. No, they're not. <laughs>
0: well, some of them were. Some of them were just women that he
1: really abused oh okay so but they were
0: not all dead
1: they They did
0: yeah they found the cell where they kept the women and then they found the mass grave it was 45 pounds of burned crushed bones of those remains they were only able to confirm 11 victims most of the bones could not be linked to the identification that they found also buried. Mm. So they see, they have the identity of the missing person. You can tell that this person's missing from California, but we're still at a place. It's very interesting. There are very few cases where without a body, they're willing to charge a person. Mm -hmm. Now we saw that happen with HH Holmes. Right which is a hundred years before this, but not every police station is willing to take that risk. And of course, H.H. Holmes was only convicted of killing his best friend in Philadelphia. So those other crimes that happened in Chicago, even though it is assumed he did them because he didn't have, they didn't have a body. There was really nothing you could do about it. So that's the issue that uh, the California police are coming up against here. We have all this proof that he killed all these, but we have to connect them. So they spend the process and they are able to connect 11 people's bones to the identities that I told you before. Mm-hmm. They also found videotapes to three of the women who were assaulted. Uh, like I said, Charles runs. He ends up getting help from Cricket, who had no idea yet what the two of them had been up to on her family ranch. Oh, really? Yeah. So she ends up helping him get to Canada. He remains off the radar for a month. He doesn't even know that Leonard committed suicide. This is the part that gets me. He manages to fight extradition back to California until September 26th, 1991. And that was only a 3-4 vote by the Supreme Court there was a major push as to whether they should send him back to America knowing that California had the death penalty back then. I mean, technically they still do, but they haven't executed anybody in decades. Send him to California. Well, now back in California, they indict him on 12 charges of first degree murder. During this process, he goes through 10 different attorneys, files malpractice lawsuits against them, and then of those 10 attorneys, some of them ended up Working for him twice and getting fired a second time. Mm. <laughs> he files a lawsuit against Folsom Prison while he's being kept there. He did everything he possibly could try to do to push this trial off. He finally goes to court for his crimes. Are you ready for this? Yes. October 1998.
1: No, I wasn't ready for it.
0: 13 years after initially being caught. I
1: wasn't ready for that.
0: Cricket testifies against him of course horrified she thought her husband was just into like threesomes and gangbangs, not no. into raping women no. um charles insists on taking the stand which allows the prosecutors to ask for details they otherwise wouldn't have gotten and so he ends up implicating himself in almost every single murder also during the trial charles somehow gets the phone number of one of the jurors and calls the juror trying to force a mistrial Knowing that the jury is not allowed to have any contact with anybody. But the situation is they were a sequestered jury. So it didn't matter that he called the juror's house because the juror wasn't there. Mm -hmm. February 1999, he's convicted of 11 of the 12 homicides. That is six men, three women, and two baby boys. Even though he had been in Paul Cosner's car driving it around for months, There was no proof that he killed Paul Cosner and the jury believed that Leonard had done that alone along with Charles, you know, Charles Gunner and some of the other men who he was uh, Project Fish and his brother. Those families, of course, never got justice, including his own family who realized that they he had killed his killed uh, Donald. Yeah, Charles was sentenced to death. And his prosecution is currently still one of the most expensive in California history, costing the state over $20 million, which he will, of course, never be able to pay back. No. So it is just a burden that the state had to pay for, the citizens had to pay for. As of November 2021, Charles Ng is on death row at San Quentin State Prison uh, because even though he was given the death penalty... There have been no executions in California since 2006. He is currently 61, 60 years old. Hmm. Yep. Interesting. And that's what I got for you for these two.
1: (sighs) I didn't like it. It
0: (laughs) Yeah. No. Um, Like the like. It's not. It's not a good one. It's not a good story.
1: Freaking Leonard, you just had to take the easy way out. And nobody got justice on Leonard's half, but Nope. God.
0: And we don't entirely know how many of those bones were linked to men from Project Fish. Right. Because he's once he started murdering people, he stopped writing about it. Yeah.
1: Like he's- he
0: would just say, like, oh, Project Fish went really great. Or he would write, like, Ugh I messed up. Project Fish did not go white. Right. <laughs> go right. Like he would just but he would never say like who the person was. The only many? person he mentioned was the the gay guy. He was just like Gives a good blowjob. Might kill him later.
1: <clears throat> it's so terrible. It's like, oh uh, god, and it's really frustrating too. So, oh yeah, like I was. A not... lot of
0: them are though. I mean, that's the situation. I mean, y- yeah. I wonder if, like with Ridgeway, we could look at those bones again, mm. because eighty-five, that that was still the beginning of DNA. We'd only had a couple of successful people charged for those. I mean, I don't think we could necessarily successfully link them to Charles Ng. But we could at least... Well, I guess those families did get some kind of clarity. They knew that... No, no, not really. It's just a, a suspicion. Yeah. Like, we found your person's, what you call it, uh, driver's license at the property of these well-known serial killers. We can assume that your relative died here, but... All we got are these bone fragments.
1: That's terrible. Yeah.
0: Sucks. <sighs> Goodness. Also, pause. Mm-hmm.
1: All righty. Okay. So this week, I'm bringing you a tale of a beast Ooh. that has stalked basically all of Michigan since Ooh. 1887. 1887?
0: 1887.
1: 1887. All right. It's a tale of a dog that stands up on its another dog brian I, I don't know i just i'm on a dog kick <laughs>
0: <laughs> a second dog story yeah, okay but yeah. you know what though i gave you a, a rapist <laughs> and then i gave you another week of a rapist Six. so you know
1: the two things i love to hear about <laughs> well here we are talking about dogs oh goodness dogs are okay all right anyway this is one it, it stands up on his hind legs and walks like a man uh, it's a creature that appears every ten years okay. Only years that end in seven. Ooh! I'm of course talking about the Michigan Dog Man.
0: Nope, no idea what that is. Oh, huh. I'm I'm guessing mostly only people in Michigan know about this. Yeah, so
1: anybody from Michigan, if you're listening, you know about this guy or this thing,
0: whatever. Is this a man guy? Huh? Yeah. It's a man beast. It's a it's a it's humanoid. A if yeah. we were talking in D and D terms.
1: There you go. Uh, funny thing about this one is that I don't think I've heard of any other cryptid that has had like a song made about them. Um,
0: a lot of people write songs about them. I, but does, is this like before modern music?
1: No.
0: Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of people love to write songs about weird stuff.
1: Okay, so I I looked up on YouTube. I was looking like for songs like cryptid mm-hmm. songs. There's There are songs about cryptids but not like a specific cryptid they're just like
0: you mean nobody's written a song about bigfoot i feel I'm, like there's god i don't know any. i
1: haven't seen i haven't seen any Either <clears throat> you know way, this oh no, yeah there's really... a nessie is there a song about nessie yeah
0: from the real mckenzie's oh, goodness. punk rock
1: is it like about nessie or is it just titled nessie
0: you know what we'd have to listen to that <laughs> um There's a song called I Still Believe in Bigfoot by Danny Fryer.
1: Okay, never mind.
0: The Bunny Up from Dot and the Kangaroo. Oh, okay. Did I talk about the Bunny You did. (laughs) Where the Skunk Ape Goes. I don't even want to know what a skunk ape is. It's it's a Bigfoot from Florida. Chupacabras by the Super Furry Animals.
1: Oh. well, A Welsh band. I ain't being proven wrong. (gasps)
0: Okay, you you should know this one cuz it's called a Night with the Jersey Devil and it's by <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. It's all Jersey and that's all you.
1: Anyway, apparently
0: he released that song on Halloween of 2008. So pretty recent. I haven't been up on my recent Bruce Springsteen either.
1: No, I but haven't. But yeah,
0: no. So what's the song about this guy though?
1: It's I'll, I'll tell you about it later.
0: Ah. <laughs> The Yeti by Clutch. Uh, The Kraken. That doesn't count, though, because that's from Pirates of the Caribbean. That's literally the song from the moment where the Kraken appears.
1: And the Kraken's not even, like, a cryptid. It's like a a Norse thing. Or, yes. Mm,
0: I think it's cool.
1: Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay, (laughs) Got off topic. We'll talk about the song later about this guy. that actually kind of, like, sparked a lot of this stuff. Uh Uh-huh. That's been, like, just... So...
0: You said it's eighteen hundreds mm-hmm. years ending in seven.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about the first year.
1: Okay, well, so the first year, uh, the first year, eighteen eighty-seven. That's actually when it, reports go back to. Um, when I say reports, you saw Portations. the air quotes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So reports of the dogman actually come from the song so this one is from 1887 um and it's about two lumberjacks that are in wexford uh, yes wexford county okay and they see a creature that they say has the head of a dog in the body of a man while they're in the in the woods
0: i'm sorry i just i smile because that imagery is just really funny yeah of the body, like your body, but like a dog head yeah. on top of <laughs> you, I imagine you'd be tall and lean. I don't know why <laughs> so that's what I thought you,
1: yeah, Laser are furry um there are no actual written accounts from eighteen eighty
0: seven so An- when did the written accounts start? uh,
1: like nineteen hundreds
0: like early. No, nah, really. Hmm. <laughs> Do we have any uh, cultural connection to this dog man? Sort of, yes. Um
1: there were some tribes that that they talked about some okay. type of dog that, man That type lends thing. some legitimacy. Y- yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Not a lot, though. Well,
0: the oral tradition, I believe in it more when it's indigenous people right, than right. other yeah. Folks.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah.
0: I, when it's like a, a an ancient culture, I believe in their oral tradition. Now I'm like, why didn't you write this down? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, the, all, all this all this stuff that was in the songs, is all that stuff um now even though the legend says that the dog man comes like every 10 years on Mm -hmm. years that and seven some i've read that some are like there are some accounts that like he comes like you see him like twice a year or twice well that's Uh, my
0: question i was just thinking that too i'm like so if it's 1997 Mm -hmm. is he gonna show up all 1997 or just once,
1: right? Is or- he
0: having? Is this like he gets escaped from hell and he gets to just have his what's that like time that you get to hang out when you're a um, like a an Amish person?
1: Oh, a uh, r- rum Yeah.
0: Do you get like? Does he get like a rum for <laughs> the year that rumspringa. ends in seven? <laughs> is that what's happening here? Or- he just gets to be free and he's like about to get my yeah my party on up in Michigan like
1: that or like he. Like I've seen people, they they okay. So there's one. It's from like
0: 1961.
1: Okay, and it does that end in a seven?
0: Nope.
1: No. Like, but maybe what the that
0: hell? person just waited because they had to process what they saw.
1: Maybe there's one from 1993, and <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, like I got that, and I was like, okay, I I, I buy the like, it's, it's just the seven thing, but okay, whatever.
0: Anyway. Or okay, hmm. bear with me here. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. There's a different dog man. Oh, wait. and he's on a different time span. We'll
1: actually touch on that too.
0: Nice! <laughs> there's more than one and they're on different ten year time loops. Yeah. So there's a ninety-three, there's a there's a three year, there's a one year, there's a seven year. So pretty much if you live in Michigan, you could see the dog man anytime. You really could, <laughs> honestly.
1: And I'll tell you why. Uh, so I'm gonna. I want to read some of these reports okay. from people who who witnessed this dog man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll start with the earliest one that I found that was from 1961. And this is an account from a boy talking about his time with his father. And yeah. So when I was a boy, my father was a night watchman at a manufacturing plant located in a rural area between Big Rapids and. I can't pronounce it. In chip, Chippewa? 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. Lake, uh, Michigan. Our- I
0: just mentioned Chippewa in the first news story. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's where that man, oh, the, the man who died and the man who told him that his, his dad cared about it, that was happy for him. That's right. They were part of the Chippewa tribe.
1: There you go. And I was like, and you were talking about Michigan. I was like, oh, okay. I got it. So, anyway. Michigan. Our house... Uh, which if i remember right was a perk of uh, the night watchman job it was across the street from the factory the plant building was right next to a large wilderness area of state land mm-hmm. at the time it was simply known as the hay marsh but now it is officially called the hay state game area hmm. we didn't understand it at the time but dad was always very skittish about letting us play outside after dark He would sometimes talk about hearing coyotes or bears roaming around in a haymarsh when when he was walking the perimeter of the building at night. One night in the summer of 1961, Dad walked back to the house to sit on the porch and have a cup of coffee and a sweet roll.
0: Mm -hmm. He
1: had a good view of the entire plant property. He saw some movement near a chain link fence behind the building that was approximately 3 a.m., Um, so he felt quite sure that this person wasn't there by accident. He drew his gun and watched for a few minutes. That's when he noticed this was not a person at all, but something much taller. He said it appeared to be covered in brown gray fur or hair. It was very broad shoulders. Uh, it had a powerful chest. It alternated between walking on four legs, then standing up on two He said it seemed to be looking for something along the driveway. He said later he couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. He quietly moved into the house and grabbed grabbed his his Kodak Signet 35mm camera, (laughs) which was his pride and joy. At this point, I should mention that Dad was quite a photography buff. His father had owned one. Of the first camera stores in Ohio. Blah, blah blah. Who cares? Anyway, as he stepped back into the porch, the front porch, the creature moved slowly along the driveway, directly under the lights. He adjusted the camera shutter for a long exposure. Held as long as still as he could. He said he was shaky, shaking pretty bad. By then, I uh, snapped a picture. I've enclosed a print of it in this letter. Dad said, a few seconds later, the thing dropped back down on all fours and slowly moved off into the woods, to the left side of the picture. I'll show you the picture later. I'm Um, interested. He sent a print to the local newspaper and sent copies to several magazines. One that I think was called Mysterion.
0: Oh, I know. I've heard of that.
1: um, Published. That's old school. (laughs) Published a photo in their spring issue of 1962. Dad had a copy of the what magazine.
0: It's still in print. Is it? I wonder.
1: No, I gotta look it up. Um, but it was in place after he passed away. I still have the negative strip that contains the image if you would like to Ooh, have someone exp- examine that's it. That's cool. I know, right? I also still have Dad's Kodak signet. I haven't shot any pictures with it for several years, and I'm pretty sure it still works. And. Probably. So, I'm guessing over here by the light post. All
0: right. So long exposure.
1: You see the thing by the light po- underneath the light post? That looks like something standing up.
0: It doesn't look like a dog face, though.
1: No, it was like something.
0: This looks werewolf esque. You agree? Bit, just a okay. little bit. Yeah, it reminds me of a werewolf. A lot of people call it a
1: werewolf, too. So, okay. a lot of people, like, describe it as being, like, werewolf.
0: Just, yeah. I mean, it's got some weird, like, movement with the, like, thigh area. mm mm-hmm.
1: But, um, you know, maybe
0: it's just a beefy boy from doing all that running.
1: A beefy... Yes, a beefy werewolf boy. This one... I'm going to read another one uh, from 1987. Hey, good year, good year. So one weekend, back, in, back around fall 1987, my two best friends and I were staying at my friend's cabin, which is not far from the small town of Sparta, around, uh, about 20 minutes north of Grand Rapids. Okay. My, my two friends left to have dinner while I stayed behind at the cabin. Following the dinner, the men headed back towards Sparta in the cabin. What happened next would shock and disturb them for years. It was dark, and they were on a rural road. Suddenly, both of them saw something standing by the side of the road. In the headlights of the car, it appeared to be a human-like figure covered in gray fur. Mm -hmm. As they got closer and passed the figure, both of them got a very good look at it. It was the size of a man stood on two legs, it was covered head to toe in gray fur, and had a wolf-like face. It even raised its hands and started to snarl at them as they drove by. They said it looked like a werewolf out of a Hollywood movie. Oh! My two friends didn't dare stop. They continued driving, and of course, they were peppering each other with questions. Did you see that too? Was that a dog? Was that someone dressed in a costume? And so on and so on. Um, As they were having this animated conversation, they passed by the sign that says, Welcome to Sparta, and drove through the small main street and continued out of town in the direction of my cabin. Their conversation about what had just happened continued when both of them looked up to see the same Welcome to Sparta sign again, followed by the same main street that they had just driven through only moments ago. They hadn't stopped or turned around. They had been traveling in the same direction on the same road, but somehow, without any noticeable interruption in their journey, they had somehow been sent backwards several miles. Until this point, it would be easy to dismiss this event as someone playing a joke. However... The time displacement characteristic is what sets this uh, encounter apart. Well, Oh, goodness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I did not know. Uh, I'm just going to read it. However, the time displacement characteristic is what sets this encounter apart. While such things are well-documented in UFO and alien abduction stories... It's something we've not seen before in dogmen sighting reports. Um, So, and and the story continues. It says, I remember when they finally showed up at my cabin. They arrived no later than what I expected them to, around 9 p.m. or so. And I remember how animated they were about their strange encounter. But I just assumed that they had seen a large dog and were telling me an embellished story in order to get a laugh. But 20 years later, uh, both of them still insist that this was no joke. I have no idea what to make of this story. Maybe it was just some teenagers in a werewolf costume playing pranks. And did my friends really experience lost time afterwards? And (laughs) did they just make some wrong turns on their drive and didn't notice because they were talking and distracted? I have no idea, but I would love to know if anyone else has seen similar things in the Sparta area. So there's no picture uh, attached to this one. But yeah, that's another one. So there is one piece of evidence that may prove that uh, the Dogman truly exists. And that is called the the Gable films. Okay. So this film was found at an estate sale. Oh. Uh, it, and on this film it depicts a, a young boy and his family you know they're enjoying a snowy day riding the snowmobiles around uh you know hanging out with their dog they then head home but on the way they notice some type of large animal in in the field so what do they do they stop the truck and they get out to get a better look at the thing until it notices them noticing it. And it begins to charge at them. It attacks oh. the boy filming. Like, i watched the video. And um, you can actually catch a glimpse of, like, the, the creature's mouth as it's, like, attacking the camera. Ooh. Um, but, yeah, it's... it's, it's so, this grainy film has... Like eventually was discovered to be a, ho- a hoax. Oh, thank goodness!
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> like you can kind of tell, like as the as the beast is like charging towards them, you can tell it's like some type of costume he's wearing. Okay, but um, but some diehard Dogman believers are so convinced that this is the real deal. Um, and the okay. the, the film was made by a guy, a kid named uh, Mike. A, a Grusa. okay um and he's said that like no this is fake <laughs> like it's all fake
0: <laughs> he's like listen all i did was just make like a a short horror film maybe yeah i'll took this and ran with it
1: it was pretty cool though i, I liked it uh, okay so you mentioned that maybe there's another like werewolf type of thing mm-hmm. so there is and it's called the beast of bray road okay <clears throat> and this is another creature uh but it's from Wisconsin. So Wisconsin's right next to Michigan. Yeah.
0: Makes sense.
1: Um so and it's also called the Wisconsin werewolf. Ooh. So funny enough, this is like this this not so good boy is looks just like the Michigan dogman. So <laughs> maybe he takes a break from Michigan and just heads to Wisconsin um
0: you know wisconsin
1: yeah wisconsin (laughs) and it's funny because not only is wisconsin touching um was it michigan but illinois is is also touching michigan and wisconsin so i I won't be surprised if there's like an illinois werewolf or something like that coming up soon
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, you're going to talk about that too?
1: It, look, if there's if there's one <laughs> I'm like it's the same thing. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh I find it funny that there was like a full investigation on this uh beast of Bray w- Road. Okay. But there wasn't one done like not a very I don't think there was one done on the 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 one from Michigan. <sighs>
0: hmm.
1: Yeah, the Michigan dog man. Um, but I'll get more into why that is right about now. So on April 1st, 1987, a DJ named Steve Cook records a song and is titled The Legend. Mm. It was supposed to be an April Fool's joke. Like, he honestly never heard of the Michigan Dogman before. Uh, he recorded the song. He was just, he just, I guess, gathered some like folklore from around North America and like he just snapped it into a song and that's what he made. So he played the song a couple times on the radio and he had no like no listeners like reacted to it or nothing like that. But as soon as he was like a- a- about to let the joke die off, He started getting calls about the song. Oh. Like a lot of people, a lot of listeners. Do you like it? Maybe.
0: (laughs) I don't think that's a good answer.
1: I don't know, because I've listened to it. Um, It's okay. It's no dubstep? It's no dubstep. It's no (laughs) dubstep. Oh, they can make a remix of it, though. You do that. Yes, 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 yes. So, a lot of listeners actually claim to have witnessed a creature similar to the one uh, Cook described in his song. Okay. So, within a month, The Legend of the Dog Man, this is the actual title of the song, it became uh, the most requested song on the air and it actually entered the rotation for a while too. So, it was like. On the radio. Yeah. (laughs) So, remember. Do you remember me telling you about this? Like, there are like three different versions of this song. No? Okay. Mm -hmm. I was looking up on Spotify. And actually.
0: Oh, right. Okay. I do remember you telling me that.
1: Yeah. And, well, each of them were released within 10 years of each other on years that end in seven. You remember that from the beginning of this? Dogman only appears every right, 10 right, years right. At the on year, year of the 7. Years. And this song only comes out <laughs> only comes out with a newer version every 10 years on years that end in 7. So there's one for 1987, one from 1997, and there's one for 2007. Um I I wanted to read some of the lyrics from this song.
0: <laughs> I'm rare, I'm here for it.
1: Because like it's funny and I liked it and I could only find the one for
0: 1997.
1: Okay. So I'm just going to like read the first paragraph of this.
0: mm
1: mm-hmm. Mhm. Um it goes, "A cold summer night, a cold summer morning in early June is when the legend began at a nameless logging camp in Wexford County where the Men, I don't, men, look, I cannot read words, but it's where a river began, a river ran. Um, Eleven lumberjacks near the Garland Swamp found an animal they thought was a dog. In a playful mood, they chased it around till it ran inside a hollow log. A logger named Johnson grabbed him a stick and poked around inside. Then the... The thing let out an unearthly scream and came out and stood upright. None of those men ever saw, ever said very much about whatever happened then. They just packed up their belongings and left that night, were never heard from again. It was ten years later, in 97, when a farmer near Buckley was found. Slumped over his plow, his heart had stopped. There were dog tracks all around. There's more. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm not going to read it.
0: I'm not feeling all that, you know, excitement.
1: Good. I'm reading like Ben Shapiro would read WAP <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> oh,
0: goodness. In this house.
1: <laughs> oh, Am I reading the right one? No, wrong one. But yeah, that's um. So there was actually a, a a movie made in 2011 about this too. Oh, yeah, it's called Dog Man, and it uses some. I think it uses like some of the scenes from the Gable film. Okay. For some of it, and mm. yeah i mean that's all that's basically all there is like i just liked how there was a, a freaking song that like ignited so many people calling in or like i've seen this man i've seen this thing it's supposed to be I, like is like um steve cooks he's like i made it up completely from my own imagination as an april fool's joke uh, for the radio and stumble away into a legend that goes back all the way to native american times mm. and he's like i i didn't know i was making i was talking about something that would be real <laughs> it's so weird but yeah that's it that's what i got
0: well there you go mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was something <laughs>
1: Uh if you guys want to listen to the song it's you can find it anywhere on YouTube spot it's definitely on Spotify um it's it's a, it's worth a listen it's very it's very folky better than how i read it but <clears throat> thank you guys for listening this week yeah i hope you had some laughs with us when we're talking
0: about weird stuff yeah always always thanks for listening and you have a good night yep
1: have a good night have a good week